0: So we started being invited to play in places where you didn't have to play tunes that people recognised and one of these was UFO and the great thing about UFO was that uh, I think the audience is so stoned and they lay around on the floor that they really had no idea what you were playing. They couldn't have sung along with any tune if they knew it anyway. So you could really do anything you liked and Mark Boyle was doing these wonderful light shows and turned it into a kind of magic space. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture, your home for all things countercultural, oral testimonies from the underground, half remembered, half forgotten stories from the upside down. I'm Stephen Coates, and that was Robert Wyatt from Soft Machine, from uh, Memories of the UFO Club and the Fantastic Light Shows down. You couldn't turn up at any self respecting psychedelic hangout, countercultural club, happening, being, or even disco in the late 60s and 70s, without being immersed in a cosmic cloud of swirling dreamy liquid lights, images, forms and symbols illuminating and enhancing the music. Now if we took a trip in a time machine back to those days, we might find those light shows a bit primitive, given the multimedia high-tech laser extravaganzas we've got used to. Shows of the 60s and 70s were genuinely revolutionary, mind-bending, consciousness enhancing, state altering, especially if augmented by a dose of LSD. For more on that in a moment. Thanks to John, Rags and Susie for their support this last month. Come and join them and us at the Bureau of culture.com Now, let's trip the light fantastic. I'm joined today by my countercultural companion in arms, Kevin Foulkes, DJ Foo turntablist, graphic designer par excellence, and now author. His wonderful new book, Wheels of Light, published by Four Corners Books, is a trip through the history of the British Light Show from 1970 to 1990. And it's a gorgeous multicoloured sensory experience all by itself, filled with amazing artwork and images. And we're joined by Neil Rice, co-founder of Optokinetics, one of the main suppliers of the projectors and gizmos that created the Psychedelic Light Show. And Jenny Caldwell, travelling light jay for many bands in the second summer of love, including those Sonic Assassins, Hawkwind. But Kev, let's start with you. First of all, congratulations on this beautiful book. Thanks very much, Stephen. Yeah, and welcome to welcome back to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Yeah,
1: feels weird to be an author, <laughs> as well.
0: Well, you add it to your sort of long list of uh, achievements. I mean, let's just go through them. So, how many how many albums with DJ Food?
1: <laughs> i've lost count uh recorded albums mixed albums you know hours of radio oh, remixes for remixes yeah hundreds of artists
0: so many out and then of course designer how many how many record covers now oh,
1: lost count that's the next book i think
0: record covers and then of course live djing yeah. recently the turntable list stuff well always been a turntableist, but you've invented this crazy four-deck turntable which I still don't quite understand but
1: well it's I call it the Quadraphon it's a four arm turntable so you can play four different parts of the same record off the same deck Um, you can move three of the arms backwards and forwards and I build up soundscapes through using locked groove records which I play at
0: four different points all put through a mixer and effects there's all the other graphic stuff that you do as well including stuff for ninja and all your long history of that so How did you get time to write this book? In fact, just to add in two as well, you've just designed sleeves for my last four (laughs) albums. A lot of other stuff. So, I mean, uh, do you actually go to sleep? I go to sleep pretty late, yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, I did wonder if you mentioned your
0: albums. (laughs) You know, and also, uh, let's mention your online blog, which is a kind of uh, collection of the crazy imagery and stuff that you come across, mainly sort of music bit based stuff isn't it Countercultural stuff too you've been doing a lot yeah. posting a lot of stuff from international times and
1: yeah stuff like that generally graphic and and musical things either historical or visual um you know i take a lot of street art pictures as well always photograph graffiti since the 80s just generally visually always aware um you know and we've we've crossed over and many times on these things
0: well i'm going to put links to all your stuff actually in the show notes um but actually, this book, you know, which has just been come out, I mean, just tell us about the genesis of that then.
1: Well, this happened in uh, mid twenty nineteen, pre COVID. I got a call from Paul Noble, who works at Spiritland, um, who'd just been up to the Optokinetics HQ in Luton, where he lives, discovered a huge plan chest of artwork with all this original wheel art from picture wheels. And you probably know another one <laughs> another list of my resume is i've I've got a night called further with my friend Pete Williams, which we do occasionally, which is all submersive sort of psychedelic visual slides oil wheels that sort of thing
0: but okay well but let's let's have some definitions so I mean we talk about light shows, so um you know which as I mentioned in the intro we're all used to these kind of super high-tech ones now, aren't mm. we, right? But back in the day, right, and they really kind of got going, maybe in America first, right, I think? Yes, yes, definitely. West Coast. I mean, I did an interview last time with Ken Babs, who's one of the Merry Pranksters, and their acid tests, one of the Merry Pranksters, I can't remember which one, was experimenting then, you know, with, with, uh, with lights and stuff. But also, you talk about in the book, the Boyle family, right? Yeah doing this stuff in quite early 60s right
1: yeah early 60s Mark Boyle and Joan Hills the Mm. collectively known as the Boyle family and later with their children yeah they you know the art set really they were they they were the cutting edge as they always are the avant-garde were first and they were doing happenings in their home initially and then art galleries and then they got sort of co-opted into the clubs like UFO and then
0: ended up touring with Hendrix and soft machine around the US yeah, right. So we'll come back to that in a second. So, I mean, of course, at the time, so, you know, from the sort of late 50s, rock and roll's kicked off, right? And then you're moving into the 60s and all sorts of stuff's changing. But really, in a way, the most interesting thing about bands was often just their outfits, wasn't it? I mean, you know, you went to a gig and it was the band, wasn't it? And, you know, the band played for a short gig, you know, maybe four or five bands at a at a gig, you know, and it's it was, you looked at the band, didn't you? And then suddenly this thing happens. Yeah. Whereby... Either the band's not enough or a combination of the new technology and experimentation and all the other stuff that's going on.
1: It's the classic thing, isn't it? Different elements collide. For usually a couple of years, tops and just create this perfect synergy. You know, punk happened ten years after. And that technology coming out of the art galleries and going into the clubs literally lit everything on fire. It was quite a monochrome world up until that point and the clubs basically just suddenly got came awash with color you know tv was black and white
0: tv was black and white right yeah 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 yeah. so you've got the whole swinging 60 things kicking off in all other respects isn't it fashion music Mm. but i think the drugs is part of it too not that i mean not that the actual drugs well maybe it's a combination you've got drugs you've also got new technologies and i thought the other thing is just to sort of define some of these terms so we talk about light shows but in those days what were the options? What, were the kind of, what was it made up of? You talk about oil, you talk about slides and wheels. Just give us a run-through of the actual gizmos.
1: There's a, there's a difference between UK light shows and American light shows, and American light shows were liquids. They were called sort of liquid shows or wet shows sometimes, and people got two clock faces and submerged ink and oil in between the two and squashed it together and basically projected that from overhead projectors. Over here, there was a bit of that, There were slide projectors there was cine super 8 film and things like that and later on these wheels came out with pictures liquids and more afx Uh, that was a bit more into the 70s though that's what my book it's jumping off from the end of the 60s into when this thing became a sort of business really
0: yeah so i want to dig in a bit so just to understand it so it's quite it was quite handmade in some ways as well wasn't it so you're getting let me understand it so you're getting say two pieces of glass for instance right and you're you're injecting liquid different liquids in between them and in the way that kind of oil and water goes all weird and stuff like that different colored liquids yeah and then you're shining a light through that that's that's what it is the projector right yeah but you sort of and then also you get the wheel to move and so it's this continually evolving
1: oh, No, that's slightly different ah, that's okay. a, wheel, a wheel is a wheel is separate to the, right. to the clock faces and the, and the oil that's literally our overhead projector. the kind of thing you'd have in school right. where the teacher would write on this thing and then it would project out onto the school classroom wall right. they were literally co-opting things like that right. and raiding science uh, catalogs for you know oils and, and liquids and, and, and all sorts of microscopes and and lenses and prisms and you know they started to stick in prisms and kaleidoscopes in front of projection lenses to divide up and move around the image and you know just just distortion techniques basically
0: right so next yeah quite experimental so who were the first bands or what was it more like the clubs that actually that started to take it out of the galleries and you know associate it more with music and happenings and stuff. Well, in the UK,
1: you had places like the Drury Lane Arts Lab and places like that. I think that was some of the earliest kind of happening places outside of galleries. And then you had UFO, of course, which was late 66. Um, And you had people like Mark Ball working there. Uh, A few others as well. He wasn't exclusively um, there. Um, But, you know, once UFO jumped off, it was very quickly followed by several others, like Middle Earth and... um, it's happening forty-four. I think it's another one, um, you know. And, and from by the by the early seventies, there were literally hundreds of light shows in the UK. And my book is very UK based. I must I must state that as well. Mm. Uh, the US scene is just huge, right? Um, and the European as well.
0: Sure. So just we've mentioned UFO many times on this show, right? Club just around the corner yeah. and the home of psychedelia. Sort of this very short-lived, small place, is not it? With yeah. a few hundred people hanging out for a... well,
1: again, ne- less a, than a year. Less than I a year, right? Like, yeah, yeah.
0: And um, so, right, so the Boyle family got involved, the Mark Boyle family got involved with lighting bands like Soft Machine and Floyd there, right? There's some pretty famous footage, isn't there, of, of Floyd on stage there getting yes, kind of washed right. in, Sid Barrett getting washed in lots of different colours.
1: I think initially the story goes that Boyle was actually co-opted into UFO to be one of the main acts and because they were doing presentations and sort of shows of their own and he basically just stayed on, because Soft Machine were on after them, and he just did the lights for Soft Machine, and that's kind of a bit of serendipity that just connected the music and the art world suddenly.
0: Yeah, and I think quite was quite interesting is that, do you think that it actually had a, had an effect on the music? Because when there's a light show like that, particularly when it's projected, you know, and it's and it, a lot of stuff going on, mm. the musicians don't have to sort of think so much about doing stuff like they were doing at the early 60s with routines and stuff, did they? And also the actual, the whole ambience of the place changes, right? So you're going to get a lot of people lying down off their boxes, right, looking at the lights, right? And it's going to be much more of a three-dimensional sensory experience. So do you think that sort of fed back into the kind of music that they were doing?
1: I, I think for the audience, it must have been incredible. I mean, a lot of those bands were jamming, weren't they? Or they mm. were improvising. You know, Floyd did a lot of improvising, and so was the soft machine. You know, and it's it can only have just heightened the effect, I suppose, If you're as well if you're on acid as well. Yeah, who knows?
0: Mm. Well, I was just thinking that as well, because it gives the band a certain amount of freedom as well, doesn't it? Or the mm. band might start to respond to the actual the band lights, can hide. right? Yeah. The, band the band can, can hide in yeah. the
1: lights. And, and a lot of bands did... Um, Bands like Dantalion's Chariot painted their equipment white and wore white so that when they were projected onto, they kind of disappeared into the stage. you
0: You think about the late 60s, that was, certainly for the underground bands, that was the thing to do, wasn't it? It wasn't about sort of like, you know, either the front man or front woman. No you know and sort of the, and the you know the, like the beat imagine the beatles with their kind of matching outfits and stuff is that the whole vibe was is that you're that you were too cool for that right you sort of you know it was all part of this kind of three-dimensional thing you mentioned that about the audience and um did you come across many you know accounts of what it was like for people seeing this stuff for the first time you know there's
1: not too much of that in the book I have to admit and and it's the worst thing for us was trying to get any kind of photographic evidence of a lot of this stuff being projected because a lot of it there isn't much mm. no one you know, with any sense, had a really good camera on them and, were, were, you know, could deal with low levels of light in that kind of environment. And they were probably too busy having a good time anyway. Mm. There, there are a few, there's bits and pieces. There's actually more film than, than actually photography, but um, that was the really difficult part, was trying to find images that would just show this stuff in context.
0: Mm. I'm just thinking because for, you know, until people got used to it, which it must have been genuinely mind-bending, I imagine you know to come into a place like UFO, particularly if you've dropped the tab, and then the band kicks off and the lights kick off. I mean, it must—it was—it was kind of revolution, wasn't it? Revolution in the head, right?
1: Yeah, lots of syncopation, lots of you know. The light show would—they w- wouldn't just turn the projectors on and just let them run. Mm. They would be literally playing the light mm. along with the with the bands, you know, pulling things out, using a sort of uh, a gate effect on the the projection light by by moving the hand over it right, literally like burn, a stro- stroby- strobing strobing yeah, yeah and burning yeah. the hands <laughs> and getting covered in this liquid and you know, some of them using really explosive materials and liquids and stuff and uh, it was actually quite dangerous
0: yeah we well talk about things with the boil from that but they were burning slides and yeah. stuff weren't they yeah but b- actually burning stuff underneath the lights yes, right exactly so, yeah getting yeah. stuff
1: to bubble and heat up
0: Yeah, I'd like to see getting that past the contemporary health and safety officer.
1: Well, look at Arthur (laughs) Brown, though. Arthur Brown coming in with his flaming helmet, you know, for I Am the God of Hellfire.
0: Oh, right, he set his his helmet on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're not going to get away with that these days. Uh, Kev, just flicking through the book, I mean, it is quite extraordinary. I mean, I know we're going to talk a little bit more um, with Neil and Jenny about the, you know, how this stuff evolved. But the artwork, I mean of these slides, maybe you can talk a little bit about the artist, because these are these are like circular paintings. They look like sort of psychedelic picture discs, records, and they're full of this kind of wonderful, sometimes psychedelic, sometimes not, intricate, rotating art. It's almost like you know, a sort of aerial view of a globe or something, isn't it? That's because right. they, they, they went round and, round and round in circles, so yeah. rather than doing a straight picture, you know, you basically had to do a circular picture, which I know you're a fan of anyway. So tell us about some of the artists and, and you know, who did this stuff.
1: Well, some of the original artists were actually you um, noted sci-fi cover artists. Mm-hmm. David Hardy, who did the first panoramic picture wheel, used to do Patrick Moore covers and things like that, you know, space scenes and stuff, and mm-hmm. that was some of the first things and they had to be intricate because when you're you're blowing them up to huge size meters and meters across the wall so you need detail mm. because you're going to literally be zooming in to that tiny little wheel the wheels are only about six inch but the original art is is, is usually much much bigger so
0: like 24 inch so make a big piece of art shrink it down photographically put it on a small ish glass slide yeah, between glass right, yeah 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 and then go big on the walls right yeah and then of course it wasn't just one thing wasn't it they were overlapping stuff as well so yeah. you'd you'd have the artwork yeah you don't just
1: project one image it was like collage on a wall basically mm. layers and layers so you you'd have liquids some some wheels have liquids in them that basically when the wheel revolves and heats up they bubble and mix the colors some have sort of op art or sort of patterns like bridget riley paintings that that swivel between two layers of the same pattern and create, create a more effect and others have wheels and then you've got strobes you've got all sorts of other other things prisms like I was saying things that the mirrors that shoot the image around the room and things like this and also importantly they went across the whole environment the ceiling the walls everything across the stage there wasn't a sort of rectangle like if you went to the cinema mm. you know you're inside a moving living breathing environment and I imagine with the right psychedelics in you that
0: was just incredible mm, absolutely yeah so uh, let's sort of whip through a quick history of it so Kicks starts off with in Britain anyway with the boils and then it yep. sort of moves from art galleries into into clubs and yeah. happenings and stuff like that.
1: And, and very much, you know, the music at that point kicked off internationally. So these these crews started touring with some of the bands. They were going around the world influencing people. Obviously the Americans had got there first and influenced us. But um and then come the seventies, you know, this was there were bona fide businesses making their living, selling this equipment to light shows. Slowly things change music changes i heard a great quote from eno yesterday which said um it's always more fun when there's no business plan <laughs> once the business kicks mm, in mm. Uh, and the same with music and and, and everything it's, uh, things change uh, managers want lighting on their main star they want to they don't want them to hide behind psychedelics and uh, music changes too and the, the technology has to change and adapt and you you know in the 70s you get disco all the different kind of things that come in with that, lasers, that sort of thing. Eventually, we get to the 80s, 90s, and video comes in. A lot of this stuff becomes completely obsolete until the second time comes around.
0: Second summer. of the Just before we get onto that, I mean, um, just to step back a bit, I mean, think about Pink Floyd, right? Mm. So, you know, a band that really got going at UFO with the light shows. And for them, the visual aspect of their show remained... In, in fact increased didn't it oh definitely. they got bigger and bigger and bigger so that so when they started to do you know when they became a global phenomenon and they were touring the world with these huge you know dark side of the moon uh, you know massive not just light shows but whole kind of theatrical things yeah. and in their case the wall it, it actual the, the visual aspect of it became the thing they were actually hidden behind a wall right yes. I mean they took are the band that took it to the kind of logical extreme of anonymity I think so, yeah, definitely. And the trouble with that as well
1: is because Floyd essentially became a stadium band, the light shows couldn't cope. They couldn't project that big and that bright. The technology wasn't there. You had to go to another level and they had to go with the technology that that could actually light that stuff. So a lot of the the light show crews couldn't quite
0: Mm. manage. Also, you you know, in the 70s, Let's not forget, you know, punk comes along, rejects mm. all those bands, yeah. right, largely, you know, with the kind of the pomposity of it all, yes. right? And I imagine the, the last thing that a, your self-respecting punk band at the 100 Club on 12 was, was like a hippie there with an oil slide and projecting that exactly. stuff, right? Yeah,
1: everyone cut their hair overnight. Everything went monochrome. <laughs> it was all about strobes and speed, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, right. You And you wanted to be up close with the band as well, yeah. right? You didn't want anything getting in the way. No. So it wasn't really... Yeah, so it was a different thing altogether. So all that kind of business, um, and we're going to hear from Neil and know about it, but all that business sort of in a way went through a major dip, right? Until yeah. that renaissance with Second Summer of Love and all that stuff when people were like, oh, let's go psychedelic again, right? Yeah. So they started to... They all get, did they get out the old gear and dust it down? Or was there new stuff on coming along
1: as everything you know part of it came in Mm. uh and coupled with what was currently happening as well you know you had early video projection you had lasers by that point and all that sort of stuff from the disco era and and people they mutated it in the same way as as the music mutated and it became a sort of a version of itself i mean you know we weren't there in the 60s Mm. to see the original but we were there in the 80s to see that version I i can't imagine it was quite the same but you know, taking those techniques.
0: Well, certainly when I first came to London, which is in and in the I think in the mid nineties, Whirly Gig was using. Mm. I'm pretty sure they were using that sort of stuff. Oh, definitely, right? yeah, and, and barefoot bean feast and yeah. club dog and stuff, right?
1: Yeah, there, there were there were people that kind of flew the flag through the
0: eighties, and, mm. and bands like Hawkwind definitely mm. kept that 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 but torch burning. Mm, absolutely, and so and now, what's is there? It is is it still a niche thing to use this this kit apart from at your book launch with the night? Or
1: um, I think we've been a sort of third summer of psychedelic love for about the last 10 years. You know, there's really been a huge resurgence in interest in psychedelic music and culture in the last 10, 15 years. And I've seen, you know, new light shows coming to the fore the last decade, certainly, you know, and even in the last few years. And those bands that are, that are sort of flying the contemporary psychedelic flag, they want the light show. They want that old thing. They don't want, they don't want something clean and digital as much.
0: Well, good. Very glad to hear it. Let's have a little listen to this. I think it's from a British Pathé thing, Kev, possibly, right? It's talking about Mike Leonard, who, of course, was the Pink Floyd's landlord, lecturer, and light show operator for a bit. He was. They were originally called Leonard's Lodges before Pink Floyd. A wise change of name, I think.
2: The basic idea, thought up by architect Mike Leonard, is that light, projected through polished but strangely shaped perspex lenses, can be bent, fractured, dissipated, and dissolved into an endless series of shifting patterns. Using a transparent colour chart, which revolves the opposite way to another with a simple black pattern painted on it, he projects a moving design. As soon as one of his perspex lenses is added, Leonard transforms the screen into a myriad of multiplying coloured motions. Psychedelic light shows apart, it can be used for shop windows, special theatre effects, and even in the home as an everlasting, ever-changing wallpaper. Even with one lens, the picture never quite repeats itself. With a hundred or more concave, convex, fluted or convoluted plastic eyes, you really have got the light fantastic.
0: Well listen, why don't we turn to our first guest, Neil Rice. Hello Neil, give us a quick introduction.
3: I'm Neil Rice, one of the founder directors of Optikinetics, a um, company that was established in 1970 to make effects and effects projectors for light shows.
0: Well, Neil, give us a picture of who you were during the um, 60s and how old you were and what you were into and what were the shows you were going to, the bands, you know, what were they actually like?
3: My first ever gig was one of those cinema theatre tours. So the first first live show I ever saw, I think I was age 12 or 13, was headlined by um, the Everly Brothers. Then there was Bo Diddley and then the Rolling Stones. So, I mean, I was was just hooked on live music. A school friend had an older sister who used to go to the Crawdaddy Club in Richmond and see the Stones in the early days, and promoters had started bringing over American bluesmen, John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters and people like this, and she had a record collection. And we used to go round to his house and listen to his sister's records, so I I just got fascinated by the, the growth of 60s music. And, of course, as most people know, that kind of... R&B, blues thing actually, obviously turned into rock music or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I actually saw, I think within the space of one week, I saw Eric Clapton's last gig with the Yardbirds, his first gig with John Mayle in my local youth club where there were probably only 30 people there. And then the following week, Jeff Beck's first gig was Clapton's replacement in the Yardbirds. I mean, it kind of went on from there. And then the other key band was John Mayle, and then Graham Bond organisation, which had Jack Bruce and um, Ginger Baker, who were the other two members, with Eric Clapton in The Cream.
1: Your first experience of a light show was seeing Zoot Money's Dantalian's Charity at a festival, wasn't it?
3: Where was that? There was the Windsor Jazz Festival. Well, I went in '66, saw Cream's first performance, and the following year, there was this band called Pink Floyd that I'd heard all about that was supposed to have a fabulous light show but at the time Sid Barrett was unwell and, and for that reason Pink Floyd didn't turn up. Unbeknownst to me, Zoot Money, who I'd seen with his big roll band sort of playing soul music, had um, suddenly gone psychedelic himself with a, a new band called Dantalion's Chariot and, and they just had this blinding overhead light show but which we assumed he'd brought over from America but in recent years through doing research with Kevin and other people like Pooter from Pooterland we actually researched it and found that it was actually a it was a UK light show and they'd chosen to call themselves the Overheads and it was, a, it was an American style overhead light show that accompanied that I'd seen that accompanied suit money, but I mean, as it was sort of the first major light show I'd ever seen, I didn't know what equipment was
0: involved. Can you remember what you felt like when you saw it? I mean, um, what did what did it look like?
3: Yeah, it was a it was a life changing experience, really. Uh,
0: and you also saw Mark
3: Boyle. Yeah. At Middle Earth. Yeah, I saw him um, a couple of times at Middle Earth. And it was just mind blowing. I mean, Blitzkrieg. Yeah, I I just really fell in love with music, records, live gigs, but I'm totally unmusical myself, can't sing or play a musical instrument. Doing the lighting was the next best thing. And so I started doing that as a hobby initially with a school friend and then discovered Krishna Lights up in London. I'd left school by then, 67, finished my A-levels went to work sort of articled in an architect's office and the, the light shows just got the better of me and i threw in my apprenticeship with the architects and went up to london and worked for krishna lights i mean my, my father was just furious can you give us a bit of history on krishna lights neil krishna lights was run by a chap called jimmy doody the reason the company was called krishna lights is it was tied up with the brada krishna temple in london it was based in Gage Street off Tottenham Court Road, in a basement under a tobacconist. And he was in partnership with a chap called Keith Canadine. Uh, we bought projectors, made these liquid wheels, and they were sold more or less as works of art at relatively high value. The Beatles used to buy them for, for their office at the Apple building.
0: And you started doing it with a mate, did you,
3: for local bands? Yeah, just in, in church halls. and
0: Making your own gear? no it
3: was it was using converted slide projectors but yeah a lot of the modifications i think one of them was relatively unique because instead of totally removing the heat filter i managed to cut a slot in the top of the projector and put a frame around the heat filter so i could lift it up and down to control the amount of heat going onto the slides if it was was bubbling too much i could drop the heat filter back down and cool it down a bit so what did your light show consist of I just had had four of those projectors behind me and um, probably a a strobe that was a bright, sort of the brightest 500 watt regular sort of photographic lamp in a box with a a spinning high speed wheel on the front
0: with a hole cut in it to simulate a strobe. And um, Neil, did you try and sort of respond to the music that was going on? Oh, very
3: much so. You you sort of follow the beat or there's a quiet passage, you calm things down and. But, you know, it was very manual and very hands-on. Where would the strobe come in, then? Well, that, was, that was typically during a drum solo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of it was um, if, the, if there were two projectors superimposed with liquid slides on the screen, you'd actually use your, your hands as shutters to flap over the, the front of the lenses and flash them alternately and play the music. So it's a bit like drumming. In fact, I've, uh, Jasper Johns, who was the fruit salad light show with the Osric Tentacles, he was a drummer. I've met a few light show operators that used to be drummers that have come from the back of the stage to the back of the hall and taken over on the lights.
0: And what about drugs? Any drugs involved? I
3: was late to drugs, I I sort of sat back and watched what was happening to other people. I was very late teens before I smoked my first joint. Oh actually it was during the workshop in Acton in Goode Street one Friday afternoon um, I don't think I was actually slipped acid, I think I sort of took it willingly and um, that evening we were due to light like, Juicy Lucy at the Sisters Club in Seven Sisters Road. I lived in Ealing at the time with my flatmates. Somehow we managed to get the equipment down from the top floor and into the back of the Krishna Lights minivan and Keith Canadine drove and I sat in the passenger seat, and he passed me an A to Z, which I opened, and I could just see this mass of wriggling worms. <laughs> he said, "Navigators to Seven Sisters Road. I've never been to in my life, let alone from Ealing. That evening, we did have a, a an overhead projector, of which I was operating, and the um, the retinal afterburn went on for about two or three days, I think.
0: So it's in the psychedelic era, right? So for the audience, what you're doing, what the light show's doing, And what the musicians are doing becomes very much part of the whole experience, particularly if people are tripping right? So I I wonder if um, you could talk about what effect you think the lights and the music together were having on the audience.
3: When you started asking that question, I remember when we started Optikinetics, we were still doing live light shows once a month for the first two years. I had, I think, about 500 slides. I remember I had a collection of stained glass window slides from churches, wrought iron gates from the front of fancy estates and things but yeah one particular slide I remember was um, Rupert the Bear and I used to put that on a very long lens central to all the other projections yeah just in case anybody was having a bad trip and there was something nice and friendly and homely in the middle of it all.
0: Were you aware also that this experience could be quite
3: transporting? Oh for sure yeah I mean we did um, often after a gig you know people would come and Talk to us, congratulate us. You know, I can remember doing a um, an all night concert at the Kings Cross Odeon with Arthur Brown's Kingdom Come, and after that, some handful of people came to spoke to us, asked us if we actually worked with Arthur all the time, and it was the first time we'd ever ever worked with them, so it was spontaneous.
0: Yeah, I mean, at that time also, people were used to watching black and white TV, right? So they only saw colour when they went to the cinema, yeah. and then you'd do this light show, which was all technical, right? and beyond (laughs)
3: that's a whole thing with the 60s we didn't have color television until 67 68 and then it was only sort of piloting so i mean no wonder light shows were impressive in full color (laughs) neil i'm wondering can you give the listeners a quick description
1: of the difference between the liquid wheel the effects cassette and the picture wheel so they can try and
3: visualize them which came first i mean i think the liquid wheels got to come first Towards the end of the 60s, Krishna lights developed a product called the liquid wheel, which a lot of people are familiar with because they've seen them at discos in church halls and so on. Kind of like a projected version of a lava lamp. Not as dynamic as a boiling liquid slide, more sort of passive but peaceful. And, but it's still being projected by converted slide projectors. The liquid wheel was three very thin six inch diameter discs that were glued together with spaces in between the three discs so you effectively had two channels which were filled with immiscible fluids which were dyed. One was water-based, one was oil-based and the other one was silicon. Then they cross over each other so you get secondary colours. The whole wheel is mounted on a slow turning motor so that only a, a portion of the wheel is actually in the path of the beam of light of the projector. The motor effectively caused the liquids to flow and move around in an unrepeatable pattern. You were asking earlier about what unique effects I had in my light show. One that was relatively unique was inspired by the control desk in the first Star Trek, what we call a radial moire pattern. I don't know whether Bridget Riley was the original designer of it, but it's just a lot of fine black and white lines coming out from the centre. And two of those. Overlaid caused the um, moiré effect, sort of an animation that's... And I thought, oh, I want that in my light show. When I befriended um, Krishna Lights in Goode Street, I took that up to show them. Not only were they blown away, but they got on the phone to um, Peter Wim Wilson, Pink Floyd's early lighting operators who lived in a flat in Cambridge Circus with Sid Barrett as his lodger. They said, oh, you should take us down the road to show Peter. And I, so I went down to Cambridge Circus. I showed him what I'd done with this large bull race, and he just—he actually he actually, sort of smacked his head. That was called an effect cassette. Nothing to do with a video cassette or an audio cassette. And apart from the black and white moiré effect, they developed other different patterns in the moiré. I mean, one of them features on the front of the book, um, and there's more inside. So the picture wheel came last, or the panoramic wheel. What do you call it? Well, instead of a liquid wheel, it was a wheel that had a, a, a fixed pattern on it, it was either produced photographically or by screen printing yes. it's kind of like making a painting but standing in the middle of the artwork and painting it all around you so if you're putting in a picture disc the disc has to be painted with the top of the picture at the outside of the wheel and the bottom of the picture in the middle <gasps> obviously abstract designs it doesn't matter but you didn't stay at that christian lights location for very long did you after Googe Street, Krishna Lights opened a basement out in Acton for the um, production. And Keith and I and a couple of other guys got disillusioned. So around the corner was a shop called Light Sound Studios. The manager there, a chap called Peter Kutchy, he introduced Keith and I to a chap called Phil Bronker. He was converting slide projectors and making liquid wheels. Keith and I decided to leave Krishna and, together with Phil, start our own um, company. Where were you based? We decided that London wasn't the place to be manufacturing. We were looking to rent somewhere where we could live and work communally, you know, keep our overheads down and get the company off the ground
0: you so you lived together, worked together. you and your wife Sally got married, and was this some sort of countercultural community or or was it just a sort of practical
3: it was um it was practical,
0: but um that's quite intense, though isn't it living and working together.
3: Oh, for sure, yeah. Us guys got on all right, but the three ladies. um, My two other partners had been married for a while. Phil Brunker toured Europe with the the human family, with Peter Wynne Wilson in a geodesic dome doing performances. He got chucked out of Switzerland for vagrancy, but he'd met a lady there and she followed him. They, They had a bus. When they got to Amsterdam, the Amsterdam police actually tipped the bus in. That was the end of that, so they came home. Phil brought Gabby to England. They married. After six months in England, she was, her uh, visa had expired, so it was a, a marriage of convenience. Keith Canadine had done the sound for Donovan on tour in America and come back, but he, was, he knew about early electronics. He was, we were down to commercialising. It was capitalism over, over hippiedom. Or <laughs> <laughs> and to come right round to answer your point, was that Keith had come from Welling Garden City but that was in the mod days when all the pills were getting stolen out of the drug factories around Welling Garden City and by moving to London and going on tour in America with Donovan he'd managed to shake all that off although he had succumbed to heroin and when I first met him at Krishna Lights he was um, cleaning himself up but moving into into Hatfield next door to Welling Garden City all his old mates came out of the woodwork and found us living communally in a farm and um, yeah, it got a bit difficult for Keith.
0: Right, so we're talking about late 60s, early 70s now. So yeah, yeah. obviously the counterculture, as we call it, was in full flight, right?
3: Well, it was in full flight, but it was also changing because the bands were becoming more famous and playing larger venues. I mentioned you know, seeing John Byrne and Eric Clapton in a youth club with 30 people. I and mean, That wasn't happening anymore. So bands were becoming supergroups, playing larger venues. Larger venues, you need lots of stage lighting. Oh, I mean, that wasn't to say that light shows did go on. I mean, typically a Hawkwind were famous for having a sort of handful of other bands. I mean, Pink Floyd were still using a bit of projection, but I mean they had the money to have higher powered projectors. It was a, it was a case of the power of the projectors. They just weren't strong enough to punch through stage light, and also I mean the egotism. Whereas in the sixties, the bands were happy to hide in the light show and be anonymous. No, they didn't want to be famous and be recognised in the street, but of course. That all changed. We were still selling converted slide projectors and our own first custom mode projector side by side. And then we bit the bullet and designed what's called the Solar 250 projector. But this
1: projector became the industry standard, didn't it? How many did you sell in the end? The number was close to 70,000.
0: But the world was changing, I mean, music was changing. And, um, you know, as Kev was saying earlier, this first era of the light show went into a decline, right? So, but what happened next?
3: Oh, for the best part of the first 10 years, the business actually grew. And being naive, young, hippie businessmen, we assumed that's what happened forever. <laughs> Got to the end of the 70s, there was recession. Our, our product had gone out of fashion and we had major competition. In Europe, the other major producers of um, lighting equipment were Spain and Italy with all their discotheque clubs in resorts, but with a, with a product that was called a pin spot. And they used to have them in the clubs. There was one shining on every ashtray in every Spanish and Italian club and from that they got to motorising them and they used to make them sweep backwards and forwards. It's the kind of thing you would have seen along with the illuminated dance floor and Saturday Night Fever. Oh and also the reason you saw the beam of light was in those days it was primarily smoking but also the the, the advent of a smoke machine so you could see these beams of light So that was another factor that stopped us being able to project onto a wall because it hit the smoke and didn't go as far as the wall. My partner had a health issue, left the company, left me holding the baby. Our business just nosedived, came up with a bunch of new products, built the company up again. Instead of trying to get an image onto a wall, we came up with what are called beam effects, uh, which was either the wheel or the cassette, but it would just have a slit across it and some colours behind and that would be projected through the smoke and you would actually see the effect looking at the projector to physically turn the product around both in terms of its usage and its sales. And that's basically where what I would call the first generation of the light shows really ended. Yeah, I mean, I'll say it, it staggered on with a few um, enthusiasts. And, yeah.
1: I know you did some shows in the 90s with bands like The Orb which we don't really touch on in the book but how did things like that come about?
3: At the end of the eight, along came the rave scene and by standing still our product was back in fashion. If you're breaking into a warehouse tonight to hold a party then um, using projectors to quickly decorate the place was, uh, yeah, we had a new breed of lighting designer. A lot of these guys came direct to us and we developed relationships with them and actually went out and helped them with gigs and raves and things and just got embroiled. And I, was, I mean, the rave scene to me was like a renaissance of the 60s. Uh, my son was a teenager at the time, so he was the favourite boy in class because the number of times we drove up to Manchester and back in the night for, you know, Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, all his classmates would be, can I come with you and your dad? I just remember one time we went to went to GMAX and the Mondays and 808 State yeah, you know, playing a home gig. We were two of 800 on the guest list. I mean, it, it was one of those gigs that you know, 808 state blended straight into the Mondays. I mean, by the time the Mondays came on, the atmosphere in that place—I
0: I hadn't felt anything like it since the 60s. It was just overwhelming. Here's another bit from British Pathé: "Swinging Britain in the 60s: A Psychedelic Dream."
2: Intros, photographer and reporter are here where Keith Olbarn has laid them on a happening. A psychedelic dream, whatever that means, for good, old-fashioned cash. Scenery that is surrealist plus just as a background. And color such as you might see in a hallucination dream. For no particular reason, join in a happening to the beat of the 117 group.
0: And also, should we just say that Neil um, was at the Acid Mother Temple gig only last week, right? He was, yeah, D- doing the business. <laughs> um, uh, well, listen, we're also accompanied today by Jenny Caldwell. Light J, that's the first time I've actually had a chance to. Use that phrase. Light jockey. (laughs) Light jockey, yeah. Welcome Jenny. Um, Give us a quick introduction.
4: Okay. Hi, I'm Jenny Caldwell. Um, I worked with Anarch Lights in the 90s and then went on to do lots of projection.
1: So Jenny, you started projecting in the early 90s and I'm interested in the scene that you came into before that. What gigs were you going to and what was it like? What What was it? Was it live or club music?
4: Uh, both. I used to go to a little club called the After Dark Club in Reading, which is quite um, iconic. You know, it's a almost a cult place to go. Uh, they had a few lights in there, but nothing sort of projection-wise. But no, it was in the early 90s I met Pogle, and he was doing Hawkwind. He was already doing Hawkwind at that time, and uh, he asked me to come and do a little bit of design for him from the letterheads thing but I ended up designing the the slides and the wheels that, uh, that, that went into the light shows and I, I just totally set my brain on fire I was just I loved it and then I started operating the light shows as well so then I was hungry for more effects I was introduced to Neil Rice um, so I had all of those effects at my fingertips but I was creating lots of artwork and Neil was able to facilitate me making those into our own wheels as well, but we were, we were also sort of sticking bits of glue under the grill with, you know, like the glass paint and what have you. Uh, so, yeah, it was just a, a lovely period of experimentation.
1: And what sort of gigs were you lighting?
4: Obviously Hawkwind, and they, they were sort of playing big theatres and stuff, so at one end, we were Pogel and I were going into big theatres presenting these quite large-scale light shows, And then at the other end, we were doing free festivals where we would rock up with um, Wango Riley's Travelling Stage, which might ring a bell with some people. And we'd set up a light show actually in the stages in the back of a truck with the side that went down. And we'd put all the lights in and then it would drive to some common somewhere and the the side would go down. It would be plugged into a big generator on a fire engine, and bang, the the band was on stage. And
1: and this would have been the early
4: 90s? Yeah, that was early 90s. And of course, Hawkwind played those free festivals as well, so that was quite the scene. And then on the periphery of that, the, the rave, you know, the rave beats were coming in. It was probably already going on, but mainly the free festival, and, and that side was the live bands happening, but you could hear the beat happening and some of the tents and the little marquees would be having the rave going on and of course all the projections sort of lent itself to the crazy sort of bridget riley effects and wonderful cassettes and
1: dance music didn't really permeate the main stages of glastonbury though until the mid about the mid 90s i mean it was on the periphery for some years but going back slightly i felt the Hawkwind were one of those bands that kept that thread of the light shows going
4: but I think they influenced the rave culture as well, you know, their sort of trance and hypnotic music. I think, you know, they fed into that, you know, very much.
1: So when you said Pogel was doing the lights for Hawkwind, what mm. form did that light show take in the late 80s?
4: Well, the very first light show that I saw Pogel do um, for Hawkwind was actually for Central TV. And uh, so it was quite a sort of the production side of it in the camera wise. It was quite high tech, but... At the back of the studio, there was this enormous scaffold which you sort of clamber up on and it was just filled with a couple of layers of slide projectors, 16mm, uh, um, sort of splodoscope type effects. But What's mul- a splodoscope? Splodoscope. Um... Can you explain? <laughs> <it>? <laughs> now you're asking. Uh, air being pumped in from a fish tank pump sort of effect that would push air into the... Uh, coloured oils to make it bubble. Is that a good description? So you'd be adjusting the airflow so that the oil would bubble in front of the lens and project sort of different effects. Uh, Lots of effect wheels of course from optikinetics. It was a whole sort of plethora of different um, manufacturers but also sort of homemade effects as well. Dozens of projectors all just lined up on this big scaffold and with wires going everywhere. I mean if you went to a light show now, everything its all coming off a laptop, effectively, and they might have a wing to operate it from. But in those days, we had loads and loads of different little controllers. So you were literally climbing all over the scaffold, changing the slides by hand. Nothing was automated. Changing the wheels by hand, all with screwdrivers for each song, you know, or as things were evolving in the light show, it was quite uh, chaotic.
0: Uh, Jenny, if you were doing a gig um, with a band like Hawkwind, did you prep stuff in advance? Did you think, okay, during this track, you know, Space Ritual, for example, you're going to be doing these sort of lines? Absolutely,
4: absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm a researcher, so I'd want to know everything about the song in advance and I'd be given the set list. Um, one of the things I had noticed that some of the light shows that I had seen, the psychedelic light shows, were it just felt to me like it was just randomly being thrown at the screen. That's not to criticise, I mean, that's a, a style. But I wanted to choreograph it a little bit more and make it a little bit more textured. And because I was also using par cans and other effects, some of the, that Neil was spoke about with the moving little pin spots and things. Um, if you put on, I mean, light, if you put everything on at the same time, it just all goes white. So less is more, that was always my mantra, so... You know, I I wanted the images to mean something as well to the song. So i try and kind of interpret it and make things fit. And that's why, really, I started to design and source my own slides and wheels because I, I wanted to just sort of bring, layer things in and bring things in a little by little and then pull everything out and make it go really dark and then just have one little thing on it. So when you're doing a light show, you hold things back, you hold colours back, and then when the big break comes in the music, bam! You know you can wash it with loads of you know red, or and then put all the black and white effects on, and you know. But it's just a little at a time.
0: Well, could you talk about the combination of music and image together? I mean, how do how do they amplify each other?
4: Well, I mean, I often felt like part of the band, and I'm I'm a flautist, so I. Played in orchestras and bands um, growing up, so I was quite musically orientated. So I would be I'd be watching the drummer for the cues, and you get a feel for it. So you're you're feeling along with it, and particularly with bands like Hawkwind, where some of it might be quite improvised. You're you're trying to sort of pick up the subtleties in it and react to that and become part of it. And you know when you've got it right, because you can almost feel that uh, collective intake of breath from the audience. And it's magical. I mean, you you know, it's when it all comes together, it's not one thing in isolation. So it's not just the light show. In a way, I used to feel if people did come and say, good light show at the end, I wanted them to think of it as the whole thing, as the whole immersive experience.
0: And is it like certain types of music work better with those kind of lights? I mean, for instance, Hawkwind, they're quite krautrocky, rocky quite repetitive. And then in the 60s, when you have people like uh, Pink Floyd and Soft Machine doing lots of improvisation, I mean, uh, does that kind of music work best rather than like a singer-songwriter?
4: Ah, personally, I think you could probably apply it to um, all music, effectively, because anything that can be photographed or reproduced can be used in in a projection light show that was my view. I mean, I went on to do heavy metal. I, I got picked up by a Swedish heavy metal band called Tiamat when i have been doing Hawkwind for maybe about five years. And I, did, I was doing a show in Stockholm and they came to see Hawkwind and they liked it and had a word with me and gave me six weeks work in January, which, you know, in, in lighting terms, that was unheard of. You take that work, you know. And I was really nervous about it because it was really, I mean, it was heavy metal music, death metal. And of course, you know, all the graphic projections and things are quite punchy, so I was maybe using more conventional lights and then I would use the projection as a emphasis, but you could have very, very quiet moments in it as well.
1: How did you react to that over someone like Hawkwind?
4: Tiamat, they had taken a lot of drugs, so they had moved from um, being, you know, that really full-on industrial sort of sound... To introducing de- more delicate things into their music, so it was ideal for me to bring in more delicate projections and slides and wheels and um but lots and lots of black and white graphic patterns that were you know really impactful, and of course you had the ability to strobe it and yeah. fade it in and.
1: I'd imagine doing liquids on clock faces would have disappeared by this point.
4: Uh, yeah, it was difficult to actually sort of operate that and operate a conventional lighting desk. And at that stage, maybe at the end of the 90s, I was using more conventional lighting desks and I was using bigger rigs. So I was mixing a lot of projection with conventional lighting like park and moving lights and stuff. But layering it and I think all of that works really well together it works beautifully together as long as you just don't use everything at once less is more
1: and that was quite radical for a heavy metal rock band I take it
4: it was great as well because um, a lot of the audience hadn't seen any of this psychedelic so-called psychedelic lighting before so they thought this was all new and I was saying look you know the hippies have been doing this for years. But i was sort of bringing it to a whole new audience and we were doing massive festivals out in europe with uh, these huge high powered projectors from optikinetics so it was a it was a fantastic thing to be able to do
0: can i ask you about the drugs aspects of it i mean it's the second summer of love so ecstasies come in um and acid back a bit as well i suppose did that change things in terms of uh, the audience and what you projected
4: The raves were, you know, there was definitely a lot of drugs going on in the raves. Personally speaking, I experimented in all that world, but I found it really difficult. I had one or two instances where I'd um, had some mind-altering substances and found it actually really difficult to coordinate the light show because there's so many things that you have to be dexterous with and alter and adjust and operate, and it, it could all just go to mush if you're not... You know, I didn't find that an easy flow, personally. From the audience's point of view, I had a feeling that I would have liked to think that they could almost gain an altered state from the visuals in themselves in a sort of hypnotic way. But there's no doubt that there were uh, a lot of drugs going, particularly at Hawkwind, maybe mostly uh, hash and things like that. You and
1: Pogel ultimately parted ways. Would you like to talk a bit more about what happened with that situation? It's not too much of a sore subject.
4: Halfway through about 1990, he got caught with quite a substantial amount of cannabis, rather large amount in his car. And he was given three years. Um, And I was left with all the lighting equipment and everything. And it was kind of a case of the police were looking to confiscate all the equipment they didn't manage to pin anything on me even though I'd been in the house when they'd, you know, done the whole raid and everything. You know, and also there was a, an impending Hawkwind tour, so Dave Brock was on the phone panicking, oh no, what about the tour? And I was like, oh, don't worry, Dave, you know, it's fine, you know, we'll sort it out and then put the phone down. It was like, oh shit, you know, I'm, <laughs> what am I going to do? And a chap called Aidy and I went out and did that first tour and really I mean I, I didn't know anything, it was a baptism of fire, I barely knew how to plug some of the stuff in and, and uh, because Pogel and AD had always been there so anyway a d and I went out and I did all the front of house and I just kind of worked it out and a lot of it was my own artwork anyway so I knew how I wanted it to look and as the tour progressed I got better and better at it and I got quite passionate about the technical side of it as well so Pogel was in prison I visited him all the way through I don't think this would happen now because when he got initially arrested and and sentenced I went to the bank there I mean I was only in my early 20s and said look you know my boyfriend's just been arrested for selling cannabis um, and the bank accounts have been frozen and I don't know what to do and he was absolutely taken aback and he said well he said I've never had anybody come and see me and say anything as honest as that he said I've never known he said well I'm going to help you and he opened a bank account and allowed me then to run an arc lights also obviously we had a lot of equipment from um, optokinetics so I went to see Neil and optokinetics were very supportive and helped me with a lot of you know technical advice and and help and uh, I think we owed them quite a lot of money there and AD and I were able to go out and carry on touring and sort of pay back in instalments and, you know, Neil was very good to me, so...
1: But your relationship didn't really survive that separation, right?
4: I think he did 18 months in the end. Yeah, the relationship broke up really... Um, I mean, there was a massive age difference between Pogel and I and by the time he came out of prison, I was... Out on tour and I was been given more and more work, I found something that I was good at, um, you know I had the artistic bent to do it and things were getting booked, the debts had been paid off, I bought him a car but you know our relationship didn't work anyway it's safe to say and I carried on touring and he carried on for a little while and it was the best thing, I think it was the best thing to cut those ties. And what happened after that? I mean I was doing all sorts of things, I mean I, I was also working for the BBC and lots of other people. Tia supported Black Sabbath, so Black, I ended up working on their crew. I did a little bit projection for Black Sabbath. Um, my work now is more lighting installation, so I design lighting installations. They're more sort of kind of immersive experiences and I make props and things like that. But I have worked with Neil over the years to go and, you know, if this is quite an exciting project, I might get invited to go along and play. And and it's nice because it's meeting up with old friends and we did the Sun Ra at the Barbican, didn't we? The Sun Ra gig was a notable one, I think.
0: Terrific. All right, well, listen, Jenny, thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture.
4: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And Neil, thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you very much for having me. And Kev... Thanks for coming back to the Viewer of Lost Culture. Come again and congratulations again on this. It's like a little bit of British art history, Forgotten Corner. And Four Corners, of course, they publish it. That's what they specialise in, isn't it? That's right, yes. Thanks for having me. Thanks to you guys for coming to talk about this. Tripping the Light, fantastic. Thanks to everybody for listening. We appreciate you. Come and join us, BureauOfLostCulture.com. You can get our newsletter and make suggestions about who you would like to hear about on this show. Or the subjects, countercultural, half-remembered, half-forgotten subjects, You'd be interested in us digging deeper to find out about. I'm going to finish, uh, Kev, with a track which you dug up in your uh, research. And it's a track from the era about the light show, isn't it? Yeah, the fantastic zoo, light show. See you next time.
3: Colors everywhere, silver screens with pretty ladies, heedless of the blinding
4: glare. Turning, burning sound, sensations, crystal teardrops you will find. Sirens churning feet are dancing, kaleidoscope of the mind.
2: It's called a light show.